Good morning. Welcome back to our weekly Bible talk. Today we've come to Mark chapter 5, so I'd encourage you to get your Bible open to Mark chapter 5. We're going to be talking today about a familiar passage. It's called the passage of the Gadarene demoniac, which is kind of big language. Basically that just means a guy who's demon-possessed from the area of the Gadarenes. Um, It's familiar because of some uh, peculiar parts of it. Uh, Jesus sends some demons into some pigs, the pigs go off a cliff, and then who knows what happens to them after that. You're probably familiar with it if you were raised in church and heard a lot of the flannel graph stories. But let's talk through it, walk through it, see what God has to say to us. But before we do that, let's pray together. Pray with me. God in heaven, thank you so much for your precious word. Lord, we believe your word is you speaking to us, that we uh, engage with you and hear from you and are uh, shaped by you through your living word. We thank you for that. We pray that your word would have its work in our hearts now. We pray for conviction. We pray for mind renewal. We pray for repentance and faith. Um, help us, Lord, especially in some of these confusing parts. Guide us by your spirit. Uh, Lord, as always, give us grace that we might be doers of your word, not hearers only. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. Real quick, I remind you that the Gospel of Mark is all about the identity of Jesus, who he is specifically as the Son of God and the Messiah. I'd encourage you to try to understand every passage in the Gospel of Mark under that umbrella. Um, If you get to a passage and you're like, I'm not quite sure how this contributes to our understanding of Jesus, continue grappling with it because, again, that's the overall purpose of this book, to help us understand who Jesus is, what he has done, and to encourage us to trust in him, to embrace him as our Lord and Savior. Let's begin in Mark chapter 5. We're going to read verses 1 through 20. It's a long passage. I doubt we'll get through all of it today. Uh, If we don't, Lord willing, we'll pick up next week where we left off. But let me read 1 through 20 and then see what God has to say to us. Mark chapter 5, 1 through 20. They came to the other side of the lake, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about two hundred, or pardon me, two thousand, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people happened to see, pardon me, people came to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. And he was getting into the boat, as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with the demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. 
Now, an awful lot we could say about this passage. Let's begin by setting the context a little bit. Uh, Jesus goes to this area called the Gadarenes, which is part of the Decapolis. Decapolis is just a big word for ten cities, a collection of ten cities. Uh, obviously, we're talking about kind of the ancient Greek Roman Empire, a collection of ten cities, and one of these areas is called the Gadarenes. Now, in the Gadarenes is this guy who's possessed by an unclean spirit. Now, interestingly, by way of parallelism, we can figure out what this unclean spirit is. He's sometimes called an, it's sometimes called an unclean spirit, sometimes he's demon-possessed, uh, demonized, same idea. This is an individual who's literally indwelt by demons. Just like Christians are indwelt by God's Holy Spirit, uh, non-Christians can get to a point where they're indwelt by demons. And you may have caught it, he's uh, he's possessed by a legion of demons. Now, you know how many a legion of demons are? We're talking about hundreds and thousands of demons. Legion was actually a military term back in the uh, ancient Roman Empire for a really big battalion of soldiers. Uh, so the reason why he says he's a legion is because he's, he's infested by thousands of demons. And if you connect this with how many pigs go off the cliff, uh, you know, perhaps each pig has one demon. So possibly this guy has 2,000 demons in him, which is kind of shocking to think about. Now, right there, let's pause and talk a little bit about demons and demon possession. First, what are demons? Demons are fallen angels. God, remember, created all the angels, and he created them good, pure, holy. Somewhere along the way, the, the devil, who wasn't known as the devil at the time, he rebelled against God. He became proud. He apparently wanted to take God's throne from him. Uh, and in the process, he took a bunch of demons with him. Again, they weren't called demons at the time. They were angels. But in the process of their rebellion, they became demons. They became uh, the, the what's called in the Bible the principalities and powers of this present evil age, the kingdom of darkness. And like I've talked about before, I may have mentioned it in these Bible talks, uh, I believe the world currently, as it is, is filled with both angels and demons. Obviously, we can't see them. We should make no attempt to contact them, speak with them, pray to them. Uh, don't do any of that. But we simply recognize that the world is filled with both angelic forces and demonic forces. And we're talking thousands and thousands of them, maybe even millions of them. Uh, angels doing the will of God, demons doing the will of the devil. And when we come to the New Testament, something that you see is that the interaction with the devil and demons really amplifies, really, really ratchets up. Uh, when you go back to the Old Testament, Satan and the demons are there, but they're not, they're not, a, they're not talked about a whole lot. Uh, with the exception of Job and a few other passages where Satan and the demons are mentioned, most of the Old Testament kind of ignores the demons. But when you get to the New Testament, and especially the Gospels, all of a sudden you've got all of these encounters with demons, Jesus and the disciples casting out demons, the devil tempting Jesus. What in the world is going on? Well, I think the demons understand that with the coming of Jesus, uh, this is really sort of the D-Day for the battle of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. Um, you know, again, the demons, the, the devil, they've always been there. They've always been blinding people, tempting people, leading people astray. But with Jesus coming, this is really the, the great showdown, the, the great throwdown, if you will. And, and that's why the demonic activity, the demonic uh, interactions, conflicts really, really amplifies. And Clearly, as you see in this passage, and as we've seen already, Jesus conquers the demons effortlessly. Uh, they come to him falling on their faces in shame. They say that they often recognize him as the Son of God. 
And he doesn't have to employ any kind of weird tricks or uh, uh, rituals to cast them out. Uh, This is one of the reasons why um, I'd encourage you to be extremely cautious with modern exorcism, uh, modern exorcists. They get into all these weird rituals, you know, lighting certain candles, drawing chalk circles on the floor, uh, you know, waving around silver crosses. Uh, Most of that, I think, is kind of pagan superstition because if you look at the way in which Jesus cast out demons and the way that the apostles did in the book of Acts, it's with a word. Come out, foul spirit. Come out, demon. There's not these weird rituals that people tend to employ today. Uh, So again, even with Jesus, they they fall on their face, they recognize his authority, and even if it's Jesus, one particular individual versus a legion of demons, Jesus has infinite power over a legion of demons, and he can just command them and they obey, which is kind of shocking to think about. Now with a little bit of that background in mind, let's start walking through this passage and see what it has to say to us. So they come to the other side of the lake, talking about the Sea of Galilee, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him, out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. Now, right here we get into the way in which demon possession is often connected to bizarre behavior. Living in tombs, apparently this guy is not fully clothed, which, you know, again, is always shocking. Um, He's able to break chains and, you know, he's he's smashing himself with rocks. Uh, Realize that is often connected with demon possession. Uh, The devil, the the demons, they hate us. They hate uh, the fact that we're alive. They want to kill us. And sometimes what that means is that they motivate us uh, to want to kill ourselves and to kill others. Uh, Realize that the, the the devil hates life. God loves life. He's all about creating life, giving life, uh, the gift of eternal life. The devil, on the other hand, hates life. He's the one who's come to steal, kill, and destroy. And therefore, it shouldn't surprise us that all sorts of movements, all sorts of efforts to kill are actually associated with the devil. Uh, You know, from there, you could imagine things like abortion, euthanasia. I do think that in a way, those are uh, demonic uh, influences, demonic movements, um, because they're connected to that movement of the devil wanting to kill, whereas God and Jesus is all about life. For the sake of time, I won't pursue that rabbit trail now, but you see hints of that here. Anyway, uh, you'll notice the demon-possessed man comes to Jesus. Now, this is interesting. You'd, you'd wonder, why doesn't this guy, if he knows Jesus is the Messiah, and if he knows that Jesus has the power to uh, cast these demons out, why doesn't he just go run away and hide? We don't really know, but evidently Jesus' authority and power over the demons is so great that when he shows up, they've got to come and fall before him. Um, you know, it's almost as if the emperor of the universe is here. I shouldn't say as if, because literally the emperor of the universe is here, and when that takes place, they must come and bow before him. Verse 3, he lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and broke the shackles in pieces. Now here's another thing we see about demon possession. It does enable people to do basically superhuman feats. Uh, You know, chains, typically most humans can't break them apart. Unless they're really flimsy chains, and unless you're, you know, a, a pretty strong, you know, maybe bodybuilder type, you can't just break chains with your hands. But that is one of the indicators of true demon possession, superhuman strength. Uh, This, by the way, we get into the whole topic of modern-day demon possession, and I do believe that demons can possess people today, but be hesitant to draw that conclusion. Unless they're exhibiting things that really make you think that this person is demon-possessed, you know, like throwing cars through the air, flipping desks over, uh, you know, effortlessly. Unless they're doing stuff like that and, and really exhibiting bizarre, bizarre behavior, chances are it's just the sinful flesh manifesting itself. You know, our sinful flesh is pretty evil as it is. It doesn't need 
satanic, demonic help to do awful, awful things. Um, and again, whenever you see demon possession going on, not, I don't know about whenever, but usually when you see demon possession going on in Scripture, it's associated with sort of superhuman feats. So, you know, unless you see that sort of stuff going on and or very, very bizarre behavior, uh, assume that it's probably just the normal human flesh doing what the normal human flesh does. But anyway, he's breaking chains apart. Nobody can control him. He's just this kind of wild man that lives in a graveyard. Verse 5, night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was crying out and cutting himself with stones. Again, we get into that whole idea of self-harm. Uh, not always demonic, but sometimes demonic. I feel like there are a lot of rabbit trails we could uh, pursue here, but for the sake of time, we won't. Let me just sort of introduce some themes. Uh, Obviously, what we're looking at here does closely resemble my, what might be called mental illness. Now, by having introduced that, am I saying that all mental illness is demonic? Of course not. Uh, mental illness can be connected to a variety of things, you know, excessive alcohol, insufficient vitamin D, a hormonal problem. I mean, you, obviously, there's a whole variety of contributing factors to mental illness, but clearly, I think some mental illness might be demonic possession, demonic influence. Therefore, you know, let's say you're somebody that you know, has mental illness issues, work in conjunction with your medical doctor, but also with a pastor, because he might be able to see things, diagnose things that a medical doctor might not be attuned to. Again, am I saying that all mental illness is demonic? Of course not. But I think some is. And I, I think we need to recognize that even today. Um, and, and therefore, there is a spiritual side to all of this that if we fail to recognize, we're not really going to find the remedy that we need. Uh, you know, let, let me just you know, give you an example here. Let's say somebody uh, is experiencing mental illness, and they go to their doctor, and they tell them their symptoms. The doctor's probably going to you know, prescribe this or that medication, which might be appropriate, but what they don't share with the doctor is that they've been attending seances and fooling around with Ouija boards, trying to contact their dead relatives and that sort of thing. Uh, that might be an important factor that the medicine isn't really going to address. And unless that spiritual side is brought in, they're really not going to get the, the remedy that they need. Am I making any sense? So again, we're not at all saying that all mental illness is demonic or anything like that. But do be aware that some of it can be, and therefore we, we need to explore that area. Anyway, so he's crying out, cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. So he sees Jesus, you know, what's afar? Uh, let's say, you know... 100 feet, you know, 100 meters. He, he runs to him and bows before him. And it is interesting how submissive and even reverent the demons are in Jesus' presence. And again, this is not the only occasion where this happens. When Jesus goes to other demons, uh, they fall down before him and say, truly, you are the Son of God. One of the things that reminds us of is what James 2 talks about. Even the demons believe, but they shudder. Don't take this as saving faith. Obviously, Jesus did not die for demons. He died for humans. What's more, uh, simply sort of assenting in your mind that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the Messiah, is not saving faith. There needs to be this personal embracing of Jesus, this personal relying on Jesus for him to be your Savior, not merely this sort of academic, historical affirmation that he is who he claims to be. Because again, the demons uh, believe all of that, but they shudder and they're obviously not saved. Verse 7, he cried out with a loud voice and said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Uh, I mentioned this before, I think, when we talked about one of the other demon possession accounts, but it's interesting that in the Gospel of Mark, the demons recognize Jesus as the Son of God repeatedly, but humans don't get it. 
humans, like the disciples, say, like we talked about last week, who is this man? You know, what manner of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Uh, humans can't get it, even though the demons all the way along do get it. And the first time a human gets Jesus accurately is the centurion when Jesus dies on the cross. And you'll remember the centurion, when he sees the manner in which he died, says, truly, this was the Son of God. So that's the first time a human gets it, even though all the way along the, uh, the, the, the journey, the demons are recognizing Jesus as the Son of God. He says, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Now, what's that all about? Uh, this is recognizing Jesus has the authority to torment these demons uh, if he wanted to, but basically he's begging Jesus, Jesus, please don't torment me. Now, what that would exactly look like, we don't know. We can connect this with some other passages where Jesus talks about sending them to the pit and whatnot. Kind of interesting to speculate about, but I'd encourage you to be very cautious in speculating about the whole area of demons and, and, and what, what might happen to them. This, by the way, is an area where you'll find all sorts of authors and speakers who are glad to speculate and tell you all about it. I mean, you can go down to the Christian bookstore and buy weird books about uh, uh, territorial demons, you know, demons controlling Mexico and demons controlling Russia, and you try and identify their names, and you use different rituals to cast out different demons from different countries, and, you know, you got to renounce this, you know, because New Orleans had a bunch of voodoo stuff going on 300 years ago. I, I mean, you can get really, really weird. I'd encourage you you, exercise great, great caution when you go beyond Scripture. The Bible tells us that there are demons, that there are demons that are scared of Jesus tormenting them, but I'd encourage you to don't go beyond that. Don't try to you know, figure out what this might look like and you know, can we torment these demons today. Uh, don't go there because you're, you're getting into secrets that God didn't intend uh, for you to get into. The Bible tells us everything that we need to know, not everything that we want to know. And it hasn't given us this sort of comprehensive what's going on with the demons, how do we control the demons. Uh, it's given us the gospel. Uh, the, the message of what Jesus has done to save his people from their sins. And I'd encourage you to focus on that, not to speculate in really weird ways about demons. Although, again, you go to your Christian bookstore and you'll find plenty of books uh, from people that don't hesitate uh, to speculate into this area, to pry into these secrets, and they'll tell you all about it for 1995. Anyway, verse 9. Uh, pardon me, verse 8. Uh, come out of the man. He was saying to the man, come out of you, you unclean spirit. Again, unclean, that ties it in with the Old Testament where you've got clean and unclean stuff. Um, you know, the angels are clean, they're, they're pure, they're holy, whereas the demons are unclean due to their rebellion. And it, it kind of illuminates a little bit the unclean-clean distinction in the Old Testament, that that distinction was there, uh, you know, not so much about sin. You know, when, you, when you've got clean and unclean food, there's nothing inherently sinful about the food. You know, for instance, uh, a clean food in the Old Testament would have been beef. An unclean food would have been, uh, let's say, lobster. Uh, now, is lobster sin? No. But that whole, those categories were there to teach the people that there were things in this universe that are sinful, and there are things in this universe that are not sinful. Uh, again, not the lobster. If you enjoy lobster, eat it to your heart's content. Nothing wrong with it at all. But that whole framework was there to teach the people of Israel about clean and unclean. Running forward to the New Testament, again, we've got clean and unclean spirits, and the demons very much are unclean spirits. Anyway, verse 9. He said to him, what is your name? And he said to him, my name is Legion, for we are many. I already mentioned that. Evidently, one guy can be possessed by multiple demons. One person can be possessed by multiple demons. And again, this is not the only time this, uh, the Bible talks about this. There's another passage, I think it's in Luke, where Jesus talks about the way in which the Pharisees were evidently successful in casting out demons, but that demon would 
go out and then come back with seven more, even more evil than the first. Remember this passage? Uh, I can't remember the reference right now. Uh, Google it if you, if you want to. Um, but evidently, people can be possessed by multiple demons. And the clear implication is the more demons you're possessed with, the, the worse off it is. You know, Obviously, one is bad enough, but to have 2,000 in you is horrific. So this particular individual possessed by a legion of demons. And you know, it kind of makes you wonder, how did he get possessed by a legion of demons? Did he do something bad? Uh, did his parents make a deal with the devil? Uh, frankly, we don't know. Uh, you know, we, we don't know what happened that led him to get possessed by all of these demons. But what we do know is that the Remedy for getting possessed by demons is to believe in the Lord Jesus. Uh, so, you know, maybe you're thinking, and, you know, if this is, you know, sometimes people get this legitimate concern, you know, maybe I got some demons. Maybe this is why I'm feeling kind of weird and, you know, I got these, you know, meant. Here's the solution believe on the Lord Jesus. Turn from your sin, embrace the Lord Jesus. That is what will free you from the demons. How they got there, we don't know. Are they even there? In a way, that doesn't matter. You know, your responsibility is not to figure out how many demons or if you have demons in you. It's to believe on the Lord Jesus and to trust, trust the gospel. But anyway, my name is Legion, for we are many, verse 10, and he begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. Now, what's up with that? We don't know. Again, I'd encourage you not to speculate. Why these demons want to reside in this particular country? Who knows? Uh, now, you can, if you want to, you know, talk about the way in which demons do seem to be associated with different parts of the globe. Uh, we get some of this theology from the book of Daniel, where you've got these different demons kind of connect, you know, you have the prince of Persia. And you, again, be extremely careful of speculating into stuff that we don't really know fully about. In heaven, maybe we can ask God, and God can explain this to us fully. But for some reason, this, these, this, army of demons does not want to be cast out of this particular country. So it's interesting that in a way you see Jesus showing mercy in this passage. Mercy on demons. I, obviously he shows mercy on the demon-possessed man, but he even shows mercy on the demons, which is sort of a fascinating uh, question to explore. You know, does God have mercy on the devil and demons? Uh, evidently he does. Now we know at the end of history, God's going to cast the devil and his demons into hell eternally. So that's what we can say for sure. Is he having mercy on demons now? In a way, because you know he could he could cast them in hell any time. Why he doesn't? Apparently, it's merciful. Now, again, that's kind of weird to think about because this is God's great sworn enemy. He's you know the guy that's leading people into rebellion. He's blinding people to the gospel. Why God has mercy on the demons? Well, you know, again, we just got to trust that God does whatever is wise and best. But it's hard to deny that in this passage, Jesus is showing mercy on demons. He doesn't torment him at the beginning like he asks. And then when he says, don't send us out of the country, instead of sending them out of the country, he sends them into the pigs. Let's pick up verse 11. Now, there was a great herd of pigs feeding there. Now, if you know anything about the Old Testament, were pigs clean or unclean? They were unclean. Uh, I forgot to mention this early on. Realize this entire account takes place in a Gentile area. That's why they're pig farmers. Um, so this is one of the handful of occasions where Jesus reaches out to a Gentile audience. Um, Jesus did most of his ministry, probably uh, maybe 90% of his ministry among Jews, but there are a handful of occasions where he reaches out to Gentiles. This is one of those. And this is a reminder of the way in which Jesus came to be the Savior of the world, not just the Savior of the Jews. But anyway, uh, there were pigs feeding there, unclean animals, and they begged him, saying, Send us into the pigs, let us enter them. In verse 13, so he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out of Jesus, entered the pigs, no, not, not Jesus, they came out of the man, they entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down a steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. Now again, exercise caution. 
what in the world's going on here? Wait till you get to heaven to ask uh, God about this. Why they preferred to be in pigs as opposed to just floating around in the sky, we don't really know. Does that mean that demons prefer to be uh, sort of connected to human bodies as opposed to just sort of floating around? Maybe, but be be hesitant to draw that conclusion. Uh, Is it possible for animals to be demon-possessed today? Uh, You know, we we, we got a dog over the summer, and our dog is particularly lively and, you know, likes likes to race around, and it seems like he would be a great dog for a a great big farm, not, you know, a house in the suburbs. Should I interpret that as demon possession? Probably not, but can animals be demon-possessed today? Legitimate question, but, again, be extraordinarily hesitant to guess in areas where we have very little revelation. God, I think, intended not to give us comprehensive revelation about the demons so that he keeps us focused on Jesus, and we see Jesus as the solution to our demonic problems. But anyway, as you can see, the, de- the, the, the pigs, they rush off, they go down to the bank, and they drown. Now, what happened to the demons after that? Did they, are, are they continuing to reside in these dead pigs? Were they released? We don't know. Uh, you know, it's, it's a whole other area that we could uh, speculate about, but I encourage you not to speculate about. Can demon pos- demons possess dead bodies? Weird idea. Uh, but who knows? Uh, again, wait till you get to heaven. Focus on the things God has told us, not the things that God hasn't told us about. That's probably enough for today. Lord willing, we'll pick up with verse 14 next week and see what practical lessons we can learn from this. But how might we pray this passage back to God today? A few things that I think of. First, we can glorify God for Jesus' authority over demons. Uh, if you're a Christian, you don't need to fear the devil and his demons. Obviously, the devil can still tempt us, still afflict us, and do so sometimes horrifically. Look at the book of Job. I mean, Job is horrifically afflicted by demons. And yet, demons cannot do damage to your soul. They cannot drag you to hell. They cannot force you to sin. And what's more, if you're hope and trust is actively in Jesus, the devil will flee from you. That's what James, is it two or three, four? Uh, The book of James says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. If you simply rely on Jesus, give sort of total submission of your life to him and his lordship, the demons will flee from you. It's when we start giving into sin, that's when the demons get a foothold in our life. Uh, So praise God, Jesus' victory over demons. Praise God that he's shared with us his ability to resist the devil and he'll flee from us if we're uh, totally submitting our lives to Jesus and his lordship. But also you might examine your life. Are there ways that I am giving the devil a foothold? Am I being resentful? Am I tolerating some known sin in my life? Uh, Interestingly, demonic influence is often tied to failure to forgive in the New Testament. So is there somebody that I'm refusing to forgive? For the sake of time, we won't explore that more, but is there a sin that's maybe coming to mind right now that's giving you, uh, giving the devil and his demons sort of a foothold in your life? I don't think true Christians can be possessed by demons. I think, obviously, we're the temple of the Holy Spirit, not the temple of demons, and the Spirit's not going to let demons dwell in you. And yet, we can uh, sort of be allured by demons. You know, just like Solomon was allured by the idols, so also we can be allured, uh, tempted, uh, to give the devil a foothold when we give in to resentment, lust, something like that. But anyway, um, what else might we pray back to God? Uh, praise God that God that Jesus is the Savior, not only of Jews, but also of Gentiles. I, I imagine that's the majority of us. If you're tuning in and you're a, a Jewish believer, praise God. Uh, but most Christians today are of Gentile descent. And we see here Jesus showing mercy on a Gentile, reminding us of how he had mercy on us Gentiles. That's what I have to pray for today. Let me close in prayer and we'll be done. Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you so much for Jesus' infinite power over the realms of darkness. 
Uh, they, they do not stand a chance in his presence. They must uh, run before him and bow down. We praise you for the way that they recognize that he is the Son of God. We pray that you'd help all of us to increasingly recognize Jesus as the Son of God. Lord God, we praise you for the way that through Jesus' death and resurrection, he decisively defeated the devil, crushed his head. And we praise you for the way that at the end of time, he will cast the devil and the demons into hell forever. And for the way that one day we will be freed from the devil and all of his afflictions. Father, we do pray that you would help us to see ways whereby we might be giving the devil a foothold, uh, areas of our lives where we're refusing to submit to God, refusing to do things God's way. Help us to identify those and to quickly repent. And we praise you for your promise that if we resist the devil, he will flee from us. And then lastly, Lord, we thank you that Jesus is the Savior of the world, not just the Savior of the Jews. Uh, obviously, much, much of the Bible is about the Jews and their unique role in history. And yet, you're so gracious, so merciful that you sent him not only to save the Jews, but to save all those who believe, including us Gentiles. We praise you for that. Bless now the remainder of our week. Help us to love those with whom we interact and gather us next week to continue to study this passage. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. Y'all have a great day. Thanks for tuning in.